0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. Um, Pastor Chris uh, texted me last week, and he said, would you be available to preach on Labor Day weekend? And I said, I would be honored. What, What do I need to preach on? And he told me that I could preach on anything I wanted to. And while that seems like it'd be a hard question, it was quite simple for me. Because there is one thing in the Christian faith, in in the Christian tradition, that I cannot wrap my mind around. It's something that it doesn't make logical sense. I don't understand it. There's nothing in the material world that can symbolize it that well. And that is, of course, grace. Um, If any of you guys have ever come here to a service before, we often, um, before the Christmas Eve service, we all have a candle and we light everybody's candle. And one thing that I think symbolizes grace well is fire. Because the thing about fire is that the candle that starts everyone else's flame doesn't lose any energy. It's the exact same size as it was before distributing all of its energy to everyone else. And I think that's a good example of how grace works, because it's an unlimited resource that just doesn't run out. And I had the honor of doing a wedding ceremony. Um, I got to marry my brother. I I didn't marry my brother. Um, I got to marry my brother to his wife in Breckenridge, Colorado. And... If you've ever gone to a Christian um, wedding ceremony, you know that there's a part in the service where they do the unity candle. And the bride has a candle and the groom has a candle. And together they create something new. And they light this one candle with their two flames to symbolize two becoming one. They're creating something new, something exciting, something shared. And while I think that metaphor is brilliant, I think what happens next is even more brilliant. What happens next is when the bride and groom light a new fire, they keep their own candles lit and set them beside the unity candle. And isn't that how the best marriages, relationships, friendships work? That you're not required to dim your light so that another thing can shine? But that the three new candles can exist and coexist together and burn just as bright. And in fact, you can give to your marriage without needing to dim or control the amount of light you already have. And so I love this example of fire and grace. And as we read Matthew 20, which is a parable that Jesus told, I want you to think about the Christmas Eve surface and how the very first candle that lit all the other candles has the same energy as the last candle to be lit. So think about that analogy as we read Matthew 20. Um, I also wanna warn you, I've been sitting in your chairs before, and I don't really always listen when there's a lot of words on the screen. I tend to zone out. And for this story, it's gonna be long, It's going to be me reading this story, then I'm going to do a brief summary, but I want you to pay attention because this story I'm going to refer back to later. So Matthew 20. Um, Jesus, it's a story that Jesus tells, and he starts off by saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a wealthy landowner who got up early in the morning and went out first thing to hire workers to tend to his vineyard. Now, right there, that sentence is important, and we should realize this story is an analogy for the kingdom of heaven. So it might not be so literal. They're talking about something else here. Um, Let's continue. He agreed to pay them a day's wage for the day's work. The workers headed to the vineyard while the landowner headed home to deal with some paperwork. About three hours later, he went back to the marketplace. He saw some unemployed men standing around with nothing to do. Do you need some work? Go over to my vineyard and join the crew there. I'll pay you well. So off they went to join the crew at the vineyard. About three hours later and then three hours after that, the landowner went back to the market and saw another crew of men and hired them, sending them off to his vineyard and promising to pay them well. Then, finally, late in the afternoon, as the cusp of night, the landowner walked again through the marketplace, and he saw other workers still standing around. Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? The workers responded, because no one has hired us. The landowner replied, well, you should go over to my vineyard and work. And off the workers went. When quitting time arrived, the landowner called to his foreman. He said, pay the workers their day's wages, beginning with the workers I hired most recently and ending with the workers who have been here all day. So the workers who had been hired just a short while before, before came to the foreman and he paid them each a day's wage. Then other workers who had arrived during the day were paid each of them a day's wage. Finally, the workers who'd been toiling since early morning came thinking they'd be paid more. But the foreman paid each of them a day's wage. As they received their pay, this last group of workers began to protest. So a quick summary, a guy owns land, he's hiring workers, and the workers that work there all day in the smoldering heat get paid the same amount as the workers that only worked a couple hours because they came late. So let's hear what they have to say about that. The workers said, we've been here since the crack of dawn and you're paying us the exact same wage you paid the crew that showed up. We deserve more than they do. We've been slogging in the heat of the sun all day. These others haven't worked nearly as long as we have. The landowner heard these protests. Friend, no one has been wronged here today. This isn't about what you deserve. Remember that. This isn't about what you deserve. You agreed to work for a day's wage, did you not? So take your money and go home. I can give my money to whomever I please, and it pleases me to pay everyone the same amount of money. Do you think I don't have the right to dispose of my money as I wish? Or does my generosity somehow prick at you? And this, that is your picture. The last will be first, and the first will be last. So if you think of that candle, the first candle that lit all the other candles has the same amount as the last candle. And while that seems fair because it's just fire and who cares about fire, when it's workers, we read that story and I don't know about you, but I'm angry. I'm like, okay, the workers that worked all day get more and that's fair and that's what we call justice and I'm ready to go protest on their behalf. And I think that's a human reaction, right? When we see injustice, when we see things that are not fair, we want to call it out and that doesn't seem right. But if you remember at the beginning of the story, Jesus said that this was going to be a story about the kingdom of heaven. And when we read the Bible, we have to ask, so why did Jesus tell this story? To make us angry? Because I'm angry every time I read that story. And I think he told that story to remind us that all of our games of deserving and scorekeeping and earning and worthiness, all of the games we play, they don't apply to him. That's not how God works. And it's so hard for us to understand. And I don't understand grace. There's so much mystery in it. Because it doesn't make logical sense in the material human world. Um, I, I didn't know what grace meant. I, I grew up in, as a Christian. Um, I, my grandpa was a pastor. My parents were very religious. We went to church every Sunday. I taught Sunday school and college. I grew up quote unquote religious. But I didn't know this interpretation of grace. In fact, I remember being little and praying to God and just being so sorry and just thinking, I hope that guy in the sky just doesn't think I'm a horrible person today. Because I didn't know I didn't have to earn it. And it wasn't until 2010 that I really learned what grace actually meant. But like many things in life, I learned it the hard way. I learned it the really hard way. Um, In order to tell this story, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Um, So in third grade, I was diagnosed with OCD. And I, I was washing my hands every five minutes. And my hands were bloody. And we had to put Vaseline on them. And it was gross and embarrassing. And I hated it. And my mom worked at my school so she could leave, see me going to the bathroom, going to the bathroom, going to the bathroom. She knew what I was doing and I felt so stupid. I didn't know why I was doing it and I also started um, some religious rituals at that time. So things like at three o'clock, I I promise you, God, I'll tap my shoulder three times. And so I'd make these arbitrary promises to God and three o'clock would come and i tapped my shoulder three times, but I'd wait for three o'clock anxiously. And uh, it felt weird. I didn't understand it. Um, And my parents got me help. So I went to therapy. I did CBT. I responded well to cognitive behavioral therapy, so I didn't have to go on any medication for it. And honestly, I figured out pretty early that if I channeled my obsessions towards productive things, but this could actually work in my advantage. So I shot 2,000 shots every week in my driveway. Basketball. Not This is Texas, I know. Te- guys. <laughs> um, I grew up in Wisconsin, so it didn't even dawn on me that could be. Um, so I, I shot 2,000 shots every week on my basketball hoop. And if I had a bad set of 100, I'd say, that doesn't count, that's pathetic. Get on the free throw line, do it again. And the thing about this was it was rewarding. Because people would admire my work ethic. I did well. I scored a lot of points. And I I channeled it towards getting good grades. And I was able to find lanes for my sessions to be productive. And so, I grew up pretty healthy and pretty productive. And in college, I got prescribed a prescription medication that I almost immediately became addicted to. And that first week, I started to abuse it, taking more than I was prescribed. I would run out early. I knew the kids on campus that could get me more. And I was an overachiever. I was a Christian. I taught Sunday school. I was playing basketball. I had a lot of friends. Like, Why was I doing this? I didn't know. And, and why couldn't I stop? And I was able to hide it really well. My, my job was to make sure nobody knew. I'd put it in Advil containers. I'd go to the bathroom during class and take another. And although it wasn't It was a huge problem, but I was abusing it in amounts where it wouldn't be a lethal overdose. And when my boyfriend at the time got drafted in the 2010 NFL draft to go play for the Houston Texans, he wanted me to come to Texas with him, and I graduated and moved to Texas. And for the first time in my life, I had something called free time and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be, what I cared about. I didn't have any friends or family in this new big state, in this new city. I'm from a small town in Wisconsin, so Houston was like, whoa. And I started to abuse this prescription medication more and more, to the point where I was going to the ER regularly, um, nobody knew outside of my boyfriend at the time, Garrett. He had a feeling that it was becoming a problem. And then, well, my husband, her uh, soon-to-be husband at the time, was in training camp. I had, was up late one night, and in my loneliness and shame, I took way too much. And my legs went numb and it started to get a little blurry. And so I called, I was about to call 911, and I had 91, and I was about to hit another one. And I couldn't do it, because I thought if an ambulance comes to my apartment, and I have to pay for it, and I had student health insurance, I didn't know all the logistics of it. I thought everyone is going to know that I'm a fraud if an ambulance comes, and everyone's going to know that it's a problem. And I'd convinced myself that maybe it wasn't really a problem. Maybe I was okay. That's what addicts do. And so I called a friend who I just had a job interview through. And I said, hey, can you pick me up at, it was 12 o'clock midnight, at my apartment. I didn't know her that well. And if you want to not get a job, call them <laughs> at 12 o'clock and say, can you pick me up? And um, I told her I was sick and I said I need to go to the hospital. So she gave me a ride and I spent the night at Ben Taub. They took my blood pressure when I got in. It was crazy high. And I wanted to leave. I said I was fine now. And they said, no, you're not fine and you have to stay. So I spent the weekend at Ben Taub Hospital. My boyfriend was in training camp. And so when he got back, my mom had to fly in because I needed someone to be there when I got discharged to follow some regulations. And so my mom flew in and I told her what had been going on. And you guys, I had like a magical childhood. I have amazing parents. I had a soon-to-be husband in the NFL. Like, what? Someone with a great life. It didn't make sense to me. And my mom was shocked as any mother would be. And she, we drove around um, to different appointments and uh, began treatment and getting help. But the next thing was me telling Garrett, who's my husband, but. that he needs to dodge this bullet. Like, I don't know if you've seen my husband, but he's, like, smoking hot. <laughs> like I'm like, come on, you can truly do better. And so I sat down with him and I said, Garrett, you know, you and I both know this is out of control. And I spent the weekend at Ben Taub. And I think you deserve someone that can stay sober and and maybe someone that can cook too. (laughs) And he looked at me and he looked mad and he started shaking his head. And he was like, Erica, I love you. And I think that's what grace is. And I think that's what God thinks when we come to him. And we think, dude, I'm screwed up. How is this possible? And and I think God looks at us and he's like, yeah, you're scorekeeping. You're tied to ideas of earning and deserving like the workers. But that's not the rules that grace plays by. And I didn't know that. And I often reached for this prescription medication and abused it when I felt like I wasn't good enough. Not even good enough or worthy enough for God. And once I realized what grace meant, I realized that there's no such thing as that. There's no such thing as not being worthy enough for God. Because it's not something you earn. But we, us Americans, we're so tied to ideas of earning. Earning deserving, that it's hard for us to accept something that we can't earn. So I learned four things throughout my recovery. One is the reason I'm a Christian is because that Christian story is too good and too true to be ignored. When I think about crucifixion and resurrection, it's such an aha moment for me because guess what? There is no resurrection without a crucifixion. And every time I felt pain, I didn't want to go there. So I chose to abuse something. But the only way to get, to let something new be born, let new life and growth take place, is to feel the pain. And that's what Jesus did. He was crucified and then resurrected. He didn't try to go around being crucified. And so I think so much of the resurrection story is a story about what to do with our pain. And that's to feel it and not numb it. And I know this story might seem extreme for some of you because you've never been addicted to a prescription medication. But I think we're all addicted to something. I think if we're being honest, we use overworking. We use food. We use gossip. We use all different kinds of things when we're in pain to get out of it. And I think what this story taught me is that the way to transformation was through. There's a reason we use the word through, I'm going through something, because you have to go through it. Um, I also think the disease model of addiction is completely necessary because there's a difference between shame and guilt and I didn't know this at the time, but I was living with shame, and shame tells you, tells yourself, I am bad, I am gross, I am, what's wrong with me, I'm crazy. That's shame. Guilt says, I did something bad. I made bad decisions about what to do with my pain. And so there's a difference between guilt and shame. Uh, The second thing I learned is that being human can be so beautiful, but it also can be really weird and awkward and sweaty and frizzy. And we, when we keep showing up for the discomfort, we're doing exactly what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus came here as a human, stuck in his five senses just like us, feeling it all. I often think if Jesus ever ate some bread and like had a piece of bread in his teeth, like he probably felt awkward when someone told him because he was human, and that's part of being human. Um, I think the embodiment story of Jesus is just as fascinating as the resurrection. And Rachel Held Evans, one of my favorite theologians, she says, I know the resurrection is supposed to be the main thing, but the incarnation is, to me, the most beautiful and stunning part of the Christian tradition. Third, third, I learned that grace is in overpowering more than it is in making up for. I think we often use this language that when I'm a sinner, Jesus will make up for it because I'm so bad and I need my debt to be made up for. But I really think that God's love is so overpowering that he just overpowers any inadequacies that we have. And Richard Rohr, um, another, he's a Catholic, A Catholic um, Franciscan friar and he's a pretty famous theologian he says God is often more a verb than a noun and so I think that God is a constant overpowering making up for whatever perceived deficiencies that you have and lastly I learned that we are sinners and that's not really bad news I mean, if you think about it, there would be no need for grace if there was no sin. And I know friends that say, yeah, I used to go to church, but I was just like told I was a sinner. And it made me feel bad, so I don't go to church. And I think because I know what grace means now, that does not threaten me that we're sinners. I already know that, and it doesn't bother me anymore. Um, I also have heard a reaction to this interpretation of grace, and someone once said, well, if grace is just a free-for-all, then what's the incentive to ever be a good person? You can just be bad, and God will love you anyways. And I disagree with that, because I think when you receive undeserved love, you're so much more likely to give it. And my bet is that if you are someone who's moving through the world, acting like you are enough, like you are loved, like you are human, and that's okay, that that's also going to be how you treat other people. And a, a quote for that I found is, what we do comes out of who we believe we are. So when we believe we are worthy, we treat others that way. Now, before I end with some quotes, I want to make two disclaimers because I know that stories of addiction are sensitive and that this really wasn't a story of addiction. It was a story about grace. So the first disclaimer I want to make is that medication can be really good. I told a story about addiction not using therapeutic amounts of medication for a chemical imbalance. That is totally different. In fact, one of my favorite authors says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for he gave me Lexapro. <laughs> and I think that's a brave analogy that, that, let's not confuse my addiction with mental health, okay? That there are people that need Pills and they take them as prescribed responsibly to restore a chemical imbalance, okay? So that's one disclaimer. The second one is that this is also not a story about what to do with addicts. Um, My husband loved me unconditionally, but sometimes love looks like kicking someone out of a house, sometimes love looks like not enabling. And so while this story was an example of grace, it's not an example of what everyone should do for everyone else, okay? Those are my two disclaimers. Um, Let's jump to a couple quotes. We're ending on some quotes on grace. Um, I have three from Bob Goff, and I love these. It says, grace draws a circle around everyone and says they're in. We will become in our lives what we do with our love. Most people need need love and acceptance a lot more than they need advice. Uh, Anne Lamott, one of my favorite authors, and this is probably my favorite statement on grace. I do not understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it it found us. And finally, Houston's own Brené Brown. You either walk inside your story and own it, or you stand outside your story, and you hustle for your worthiness. And I can tell you, up until 2010, my life was a story of hustling for my worthiness. And what I didn't realize is I was never going to arrive. There was no arrival where I finally felt enough, until I accepted that maybe I was okay just how I was. Maybe I could feel pain and show up for it because Jesus came down in a body and he did that so we could too. Ecclesia, let me pray with you. Dear God, I pray that as we go out into the week that we will remember that your grace is something we do not earn or deserve And that the grace we give to others is also not earned and deserved. And while we don't mind taking it from you, it often seems unfair when we give it to others. I pray that you will remind us of that story of the workers and that the currency you run on is not relatable to anything here on earth. I pray that we will be reminded that like a fire, Grace is an unlimited resource able to spread rapidly without losing its energy. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ekthesiahouston.org.